Thank you for joining us. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom. Shabbat Shalom. My name is Ephraim Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and thank you for joining us for our Arab Shabbat broadcast here on B'nai We thank you for inviting us into your homes each and every week, whatever way you might be watching, whether that's Facebook Live, our mobile app, or any of our television apps. We, right now it's January 3rd, and we are very excited. We have begun the new year of 2020, and we're also very excited here at the ministry uh, to announce that uh, registration for Camp Yeshua, our Messianic Youth Summer Camp, is open right now. You can register your youth at campyeshua.com, and you can fill out the form there. We look forward to the amazing time that we'll be having this summer, um, August 2nd through the 9th. And uh, we'll have another fantastic year uh, blessing the Lord, uh, youth that give their life and testimony over to the Messiah, and uh, another amazing time of meeting friends, family, and good times. Um, so we encourage any of the families out there that might be watching to uh, send your youth. We'll be at a brand new campground this year in Stewart, Oklahoma, called Camp Walk on Water. It is a larger campground than we've ever had before, and uh, we are excited for whatever the Lord might bring and how big that he might make Camp Yeshua to be. We also encourage um, if there's any parents out there that are wanting to come as staff, there is registration available for that as well. Please contact our office and we'll, we'd love to meet you, talk to you over the phone uh, before that registration takes place. And we're always in need of people helping to serve. If the Lord continues to cause Camp Yeshua to grow, there will be many more uh, servants and staff that are needed uh, to help to minister to the youth and all the blessings there. So once again, campyeshua.com, you can make place... Um, Sign up there with your youth and your families, and uh, we look forward to the amazing time uh, that will be had there. Once again, we thank you for inviting us into your home each and every week here with our Arab Shabbat broadcast. We hope that you uh, uh, join with your families, setting apart the Sabbath with the Kiddush and the family blessings, and hearing the teaching and the word from the Lord. So with that said, let us now welcome in that Sabbath and join with my family on this Friday night.
Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by thy commandments, and has commanded us to be a light unto the nations, and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Bahu et Aronai Hamvorach, Baruch Aronai Hamvorach Leolaham Vahed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Michamocha, Baelim Adonai. Micha mocha, nedahar bachudesh, norat echilot, Like you, 
O Lord, among the gods, who is like you? Lord, there is none else. You are awesome in praise, doing wonders, O Lord, who is like you, O Lord. Amen. And now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Elheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Natan Lanu Et Derech, HaYeshua B'Mashiach Yeshua. All together, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru v'nei Yisrael et HaShabbat, La'asot et HaShabbat, L'adrotam barit Olam, B'nei Avayom, B'nei Yisrael, Othi Le'olam, K'sheshet Yamim Asadonai, Et HaShemayim, V'et HaRetz, V'yom HaShavi, Shabbat, V'yinafash. All together, The children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema, if you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kivod Malchuto Le'olam Vayed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'achavta. Ve'achavta et Adonai Ochecha b'chol levavcha uv'chol nashicha uv'chol meodecha v'heyu ha'devarim ha'ale asher nechim e'zavcha ha'yom alevavcha v'shinan tam l'avanecha v'depardabam b'shivtecha b'yetecha uv'lechtecha v'derech u'shakbika uv'kumika u'kershatam la'ota yadecha v'heyu la'totafot b'inanecha u'chetavtam ha'mozuzot b'techa uv'sharecha All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
all of Zion sings, Oh, Yeshua. Come, Yeshua, come. When we will see the King coming back for His bride. When all of Israel will be brought back together as one. I don't know about you, but uh, it's not much greater than Yeshua. To think that He would love us so much that He would come and give His life for each and every one of us. That we would no longer be in our own merit, with our own mistakes, to atone for us. Death could not hold you. The veil torn before. 
death could not hold you. No death could not hold you. The veil torn before you. Silence the voice of sin and grace. Chandler knows that Yeshua is king over all the earth. Until my last breath, the last sound of my vocal cords, I will shout it to the rooftops. What a powerful name. There is power in the name of Yeshua. To break every chain, to heal every heart, to set the captives free. That's your hope, that's your faith, there's your miracles, Yeshua HaMashiach. Shabbat Shalom. Please join us for the reading of Parashah Vayigash. Then Yehuda approached him and said, O oh my Lord, may your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears, and do not be angry with your servant, for you are equal to Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? We said to my Lord, We have an old father, 
and a little child of his old age. Now his brother is dead, so he alone is left of his mother, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. But we said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. You said to your servants, however, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. Thus it came about. When we went up to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. Our father said, Go back, buy us a little food. But we said we cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. And the one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn in pieces, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm befalls him, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Now, therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, when he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. Thus your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please, let your servant remain, instead of the lad, a slave to my lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, for fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father? Chapter 45 then Yosef could not control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried, Have everyone go out from me! So there was no man with him when Yosef made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard. Then Yosef said to his brothers, I am Yosef. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Then Yosef said to his brothers, Please come closer to me. And they came closer, and he said, I am your brother Yosef, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for Elohim sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. Elohim sent me before you to preserve you, a remnant in the earth, and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but Elohim. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Yosef, Elohim has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. You shall live in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near to me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will also provide for you, for there are still five years of famine to come, and you and your household and all that you have would be impoverished. Behold, your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth which is speaking to you. Now you must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt, and all that you have seen, and you must hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. He kissed all his brothers and wept on them, and afterwards his brothers talked with him. Now when the news was heard in Pharaoh's household that Yosef's brothers had come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Then Pharaoh said to Yosef, Say to your brothers, Do this, 
Load your beasts and go to the land of Canaan, and take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you will eat of the fat of the land. Now you are ordered, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Do not concern yourselves with your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Then the sons of Israel did so, and Yosef gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for their journey. To each of them he gave changes of garments, but to Benjamin he gave three hundred pieces of silver and five changes of garments. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and sustenance for his father on the journey. So he sent his brothers away, and as they departed he said to them, Do not quarrel on the journey. Then they went up from Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Yaakov. They told him, saying, Yosef is still alive, and indeed he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. But he was stunned, for he did not believe them. When they told him all the words of Yosef that he had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Yosef had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Yaakov was revived. Then Yisrael said, It is enough. My son Yosef is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Chapter 46 So Yisrael set out with all that he had, and came to Beersheba, and offered sacrifices to the Elohim of his father Yitzhak. Elohim spoke to Yisrael in visions of the night, and said, Yaakov, Yaakov. And he said, Here I am. He said, I am Elohim, the El of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Yosef will close your eyes. Then Yaakov rose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Yaakov and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They took their livestock and their property which they had acquired in the land of Canaan and came to Egypt, Yaakov and all his descendants with him, his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel, Yaakov and his sons who went to Egypt, Reuven, Yaakov's firstborn. The sons of Reuven, Hanoch and Palu and Hetzron and Karmi. The sons of Shimon, Yemuel and Yamin and Ohad and Yachin and Zohar and Shaul, the son of a Canaani woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohat and Merari. The sons of Yehuda, Er and Onan and Shelah and Perez and Zerah. But Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hetzron and Hamul. The sons of Yishar, Tola and Puva and Iov and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered and Elon and Yahalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Yaakov in Paran Aram with his daughter Dinah. And all his sons and all his daughters numbered thirty-three. The sons of Gad, Ziphion and Hagi, Chuni and Ezbon, Eri and Arori and Areli. The sons of Asher, Imna and Ishva and Ishvi and Beriah and their sister Serah, and the sons of Beriah, Ever and Melchiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Lavan gave to his daughter Leah, and she bore Yaakov these sixteen persons. The sons of Yaakov's wife, Rachel, Yosef and Binyamin. Now to Yosef in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenat, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. The sons of Benjamin, Bela and Becher and Ashvel, Gera and Naaman 
Ehi and Rosh, Mupin and Hupim and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Yaakov. There were 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim. The sons of Naphtali, Yazil and Guni and Yezer and Shilem. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Lavan gave to his daughter Rachel, and she bore these to Yaakov. There were seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Yaakov who came to Egypt, his direct descendants, not including the wives of Yaakov's sons, were sixty-six persons in all. And the sons of Yosef, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Yaakov who came to Egypt were seventy. Now he sent Yehuda before him to Yosef to point out the way before him to Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Yosef prepared his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Yisrael. As soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a long time. And Yisrael said to Yosef, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, that you are still alive. Yosef said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds. For they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, that you may live in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. Chapter 47 Then Yosef went in and told Pharaoh and said, my father and my brothers and their flocks and their herds and all that they have have come out of the land of Canaan, and behold, they are in the land of Goshen. He took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? So they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and our fathers. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servants live in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Yosef, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is at your disposal. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them live in the land of Goshen. And if you know any capable men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Yosef brought his father Yaakov and presented him to Pharaoh. And Yaakov blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Yaakov, How many years have you lived? So Yaakov said to Pharaoh, The years of my sojourning are one hundred and thirty. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attained the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. And Yaakov blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So Yosef settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had ordered. Yosef provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food, according to their little ones. Now there was no food in all the land, because the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. Yosef gathered all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they brought, bought, and Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. When the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Yosef and said, Give us food, for why should we die in your presence, for our money is gone? Then Yosef said, Give up your livestock, and I will give you food for your livestock, since your money is gone. 
So they brought their livestock to Yosef, and Yosef gave them food in exchange for the horses and the flocks and the herds and the donkeys, and he fed them with food in exchange for all the, their livestock that year. When that year was ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, We will not hide from my lord that our money is all spent, and all the cattle are my lord's. There is nothing left for my lord except our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we and our land will be slaves to Pharaoh. So give us seed that we may live and not die, and let the land not be desolate. So Yosef bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for every Egyptian sold his field, because the famine was severe upon them. Thus the land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he removed them to the cities from one end of Egypt's border to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had an allotment from Pharaoh, and they lived off the allotment which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore they did not sell their land. Then Yosef said to the people, Behold, I have today bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, that you may sow the land. At the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own for the seed of the field and for your food and for those of your households and as food for your little ones. So they said, You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord and we will be Pharaoh's slaves. Yosef made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, valid to this day, that Pharaoh should have the fifth. Only the land of the priests did not become Pharaoh's. Now Israel lived in the land of Egypt in Goshen, and they acquired property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous. Thank you for joining us for the reading of Parashah Vayigash. Now in Parashah Vayigash, Yosef, being confronted by his brothers who have returned with their youngest brother, Benjamin, he doesn't seek retribution against his brothers. Instead, he seeks restoration with them. He forgives the debt he is owed. And the injustice is served to him by his brothers. He forgives them even before they can ask for forgiveness. After years of being estranged from their brother Yosef, the sons of Yaakov are finally restored to a right relationship and given the opportunity to heal. Forgiveness and restoration are very hard lessons to learn. Unlike Yosef, we often hold others to a higher standard than we hold ourselves to. This is evidenced by the fact that we often expect others to be perfect. We expect others to make perfect decisions. We feel that these perfect decisions would result in beneficial results for us. When things don't go according to our perfect plan, the way we envisioned it to go, we feel wronged because someone else has failed to be perfect. Someone else has obviously neglected to see our point of view and make the right decision. Pretty hypocritical, right? Well, this helps us to truly put the words of Yeshua in perspective when he says in Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, For if you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. That's a pretty serious statement. Now, we also see in Numbers chapter 14, verse 18, Adonai is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 13 say this, 
So as those who have been chosen of Elohim, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as Adonai forgave you, so also should you. Life is too short. It's too precious for holding grudges, for allowing division and separation to come between brothers. Let's seek reconciliation and restoration with those with whom we have been estranged. Shabbat Shalom. Um, let's look at the Haftor portion, the portion that we teach after the Torah portion. And this week we find our passage that comes from the prophet Ezekiel chapter 37. It begins at verse 15 and continues through the end of chapter 37. And uh, before I get into that, specifically uh, as we go through this year teaching about the different Haftor, as we hit different prophets, let me just give you a little introduction to the prophet Ezekiel uh, before we look into specifically what he had to say that ties into our Torah portion. Ezekiel was a prophet in exile. He was a prophet who was in Babylonian exile. He was... He was a Jewish of the house of Judah. He had, he had been taken captive. Ezekiel was the son of a priest. So he himself was a priest, but he did not serve in the temple because he was in exile the whole time. And, um, but he, was a, he wrote a very, very powerful prophetic book for us. And in fact, um, this passage that we're going to look at um, in uh, Ezekiel that goes with our Torah portion it cannot be overstated how incredibly profound what Ezekiel has to say in all of chapter 37. Um, the first half of the chapter is what we call the dry bones prophecy. And for those of us in this generation that have seen the nation of Israel become a state again uh, back in 1948, if you're looking for a prophetic passage of Scripture, a complex metaphoric passage, and you can see how it's been fulfilled in your lifetime, you, are, you do not have to go much further past Ezekiel chapter 37 in the first half of this book to see the famous dry bones prophecy about how God has taken a people, uh, Israel scattered out of their homeland scattered throughout the nations and suddenly when everybody thinks they are gone they are dead but there's just bones left of them uh, the reunification of those bones God putting sinew and and flesh on those bones and putting skin and then skin and then breathing the spirit of God into them again to come have them come alive we have seen that in the in the fulfillment of the nation of Israel coming alive um, in in our generation, and uh, there's um, not very many. Uh, I mean, you have to be pretty liberal and half crazy if you're a Bible scholar and you do not see the applicability of this prophecy to what we see going on in this generation. That doesn't stop when we get to the second half of chapter 37, because it speaks to us and the generation that we are in uh, at the moment. But let me go back to, again, the rationale of why 
This passage has been selected by the sages of Israel for so many generations to be taught with the story of a Yigash of Judah appealing to Joseph, not knowing who he is, appealing on the sake of his father Jacob, and suddenly the reunification of Joseph with his brethren taking place. Because what this passage is talking about is the reunification of the house of Ephraim, the house of Joseph, back to the house of Judah, having been scattered exiles all over the world for many, many generations. Um, And it's a powerful story of reunification. And it's part of the definition of of, uh, the final redemption. God's eternal promises through our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to not only bless him and his descendants, us, but to give us a promise of a land and the kingdom, and recognizing that historically we didn't do so good uh, in obeying the Lord and that we had to be punished and God was righteous uh, judge in this matter, that we were divided uh, for, because we knew he, he knew we would go into the hands of our enemies just as Jacob divided his family into two companies to deal with Esau. We were divided, and one element went before the hand of the enemy. The other was able to escape, namely the house of Ephraim went into Assyrian captivity, but Judah escaped. And then later Judah had to go into captivity with the Romans, but the house of Ephraim was assimilated, and they were safe from it. And now we come to the end of the ages, and the Lord now brings the house of Judah back. We establish the state of Israel, and we're anticipating he's going to bring the house of Ephraim back and join with Judah. And these will be the culmination of the ages. This is the reunification, the restoration of all things. Now, in the days of Joseph and his brethren, uh, his brethren... They knew very good and well that when they sold Joseph into slavery, and they knew the journey was going to Egypt. And so it would have been logical if you would have been there to think out and if you would have posed the question and say, well, what happened to Joseph? Well, they never really asked the question and they never really answered the question. They just said, well, he's gone. He, you know, he no more. Uh, we will never see him again. And yet, as a part of that story, Joseph himself had been given dreams from God. And he had shared those dreams with his brethren. And they themselves had interpreted those dreams, knowing that there was a day coming when they were going to come and bow down to Joseph. Now, of course, that was graded against their souls. They would never imagine such a thing taking place. uh, And they couldn't fathom it. Uh, although God telegraphed it, forewarned them, told them what was going to happen, but they just didn't believe it, and they ignored it. They were caught up in the, the most mundane of the natural things that was in front of their nose and their face, what they could reach with their hands, but they couldn't see the bigger picture. And as we all read this passage from the Torah, we see this crowning moment when Joseph, who's not recognized as being Joseph, suddenly, to the shock of everyone, stands up and says, I'm Joseph, your brother is my father well. And I, I, you know, if you could have had a a video camera there at that moment, I can tell you what you would have gotten off the video camera. You would have looked out into Joseph's brethren. There wouldn't have been a sound made, but their jaws would have been hanging open. (laughs) 
it wouldn't have been much of a video shot. You know, a, a, a snapshot picture would have captured it all. Because I'm sure they were stunned as to what in the world has happened. And as it turns out, we, from a spiritual standpoint, we're looking back and we're going, this is the fulfillment of this great story. We can see the love of Joseph for his brethren. We can see Judah and his fears and his concerns and emotions and everything coming together. Well, for all that we learn from that historical event, all that we can glean and understand uh, that took at that took place at that moment when Joseph was reunified with his brethren, we need to fast forward to the end of the ages and recognize the same thing is happening when it comes to the house of Judah and the future reunification of the house of Ephraim. Now let me, as since I have been uh, in my lifetime, I've been a part of this world history of um, the nation of Israel coming into existence. I was, as I've shared with others, I was born in July of 1949, and that was the last month of the War of Independence, uh, and Israel came into being. And that was a part of my childhood. It was a, a recognition of that uh, the Jews had become the state of Israel again, uh, who had been scattered. It was a post-Holocaust event and uh, the events of World War II and so forth. Um, and in the course of my lifetime, when I graduated from high school and I became an adult, went on my own, it's the very summer that we had July of 1967 in which Israel captured Jerusalem again. That was a dominating historical event that I recall very specifically as a young 18-year-old that, that they had captured uh, Jerusalem again. And then as I grew and matured as a man, coming to about the age of 30, coming to terms with my own faith and recognizing that I had an identity back with this great story in the scriptures about the Bible, my father's statement, that the, the words when I, in my youth that just burned through my soul and I've never forgotten is him sitting one night reading the Bible and looking up and saying to me, we are the people of the book. Now, mind you, my father was not a, a serious spiritual man. I mean, he, you know, he, he didn't teach the Bible and, and, and so forth. He had his own problems. But those words penetrated me. My, my own mother's words penetrating me. And her saying to me, when I came to be in my teenage years, that I should always thank God I was born in this country or else I might not have been born. And that world events had taken place and great things had happened and, and that I had a destiny as a part of it. Now, it wasn't really revealed to me until about the time I got to the age of 30. And although I had become a believer and so forth, that when all of a sudden the Messiah began to show me things about that are in the Scripture that was vastly different than what I had been told and taught previous to that. Namely, I was told I was a Christian, and I didn't have anything to do with my Jewish name or Jewish background or heritage. I was a Christian, and, you know, Christians aren't Jews, and, and that's how that all works. And Israel is Israel, but we're the church and, and uh, all of that. And to discover, uh, it doesn't really work out that way. 
It turns out that this God of Israel, that his, there's a, been a great plan. And it's always been God's plan from the beginning with the promises to the fathers through the giving of the Messiah and doing the work of redemption. There was always this plan that in the end there would be this final redemption and the gathering all of Israel because it turns out that Israel is the name of the kingdom. And God's promises are fulfilled and he's, he's faithful to do it. He doesn't make promises to certain people and then decide to go ahead and let's change the whole game around and do something differently and we'll just ignore these other promises that I gave. He's not that kind of God. I had been told that he was. I learned that he's not like what men say about him and that his word is true and faithful. And I began to understand that what God promised to my fathers, he promised to me. And although I believed in the Messiah and followed the Messiah and identified with other believers who believed in the Messiah, their idea of what would be in the future is vastly different than what is God's plan. So I wanted to learn God's plan. We are looking at in this passage that just like historically there came a day When Joseph became revealed to Judah, there is a day coming when the house of Joseph, the house of Ephraim, will be revealed to my brother in Judah. And we will be reunified. And we will dwell in the land that was promised to our fathers and to us. And the Messiah will come and dwell with us too. And he will fulfill all of the promises that he made to our fathers. Now, that doesn't necessarily, that eschatology uh, scenario doesn't necessarily line up with a lot of the eschatology I was taught. But that's okay. Um, that, by the way, when reality sets in, everybody learns. You know, you don't have to argue the eschatology. It, it's just let, let things happen and it'll all sort itself out. And, and this is one of those areas where God is going to continue to do what God has said he's going to do. And and it's going to happen. And if even if it doesn't line up with your eschatology, it's okay. You know, it, it'll, it'll all work out. I've always said that when the Messiah does return, he's going to wreck everybody's theology. All your ideas about what God is or God isn't, he's going to he's going to correct all of that in, in, in real fast. And by the way, when he we see how he's going to end things and bring it all about, you know what? I'm telling you what what you're going to see. I'm telling you how most of my Christian brethren are going to respond. They're going to be just like Joseph's brethren sitting there when Joseph made the announcement, I'm Joseph, your brother. They're going to be speechless and their mouths are going to be hanging open. It'll be that shocking. Now, with that uh, illustrious introduction to our Hoftower portion, let me read for you this passage. I'm going to read the entire passage that we have. It's not that many verses. Beginning chapter 37, beginning at verse 15, it says, The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, And you, son of man, take for yourself one stick and write on it, For Judah and for the sons of Israel, his companions, Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel, his companions. 
Then join uh, them for yourself, one another, two into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. And when the sons of your people speak to you, saying, Will you not declare to us what you mean by these? Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel and his companions, and I will put them uh, with it with the stick of Judah, and make one stick, and they will be one in my hand. And the sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. And say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king will be king for all of them, and they will no longer be two nations, and they will no longer be divided into two kingdoms. And they will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with their transgressions, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them, and they will be my people and I will be their God. And my servant David will be king over them. And they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. And they shall live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your servants, your fathers lived. And they will live on it, and they their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. While we have seen the modern state of Israel, come into being, and the house of Judah, the Jewish people, returning to the land and dwelling there, something else has been going on that involves Israel all over the world that isn't so readily known or understood, except by this group of brethren called Messianics. You see, it turns out that the children that were born at the same time the nation of Israel physically came into being, those children matured and grew over the course of this generation until they reached about the age of 30. And then established as adults, able to look at the biblical instruction and read the prophecies for themselves, found themselves to be part of the fulfillment of this prophecy. Namely, the Messianic movement began. And suddenly a people all over the world, not necessarily Jews, in fact, the vast majority of them are not, rose up from the midst of the Christian world and said they identify with the nation of Israel. There's a yearning, an unction of the Holy Spirit that's drawing them to. And this love of the God of Israel. And they didn't have a problem seeing the Messiah, Yeshua of Nazareth, being the king of Israel. 
They didn't see a problem with that at all. They didn't see him as separate from that Israel. They saw him as a fulfillment of what God was purposing in the nation of Israel. And they had a sense of something incredible was happening in this generation. Namely, that like we read from Ezekiel 37, that the bones that have been raised up, that are now walking around his people, suddenly the other prophecy said that God would breathe his spirit into them, and then they would come alive. And by the work of the Holy Spirit, God began to breathe into these words, into this generation. And by the leading of the Holy Spirit, I... I stepped back from my previous teachers and previous, and I went to find the instruction of Moses and the promises that were made to my fathers to see what part was I in this. Was this having to do with me or not? And then for me personally, I discovered, yes, I identify with this. It is part of my destiny to be part of this assembly, to be a part of these words, to see them work their way out. Mind you, when I went into the Messianic movement, there was a truly, like Isaiah said, the remnant was small. There was a remnant, though. And while there was no single leader who inspired all of us, there, there were key persons at various times that God used that raised up leaders. And those leaders then, despite all that was going on, and by the way, the Messianic movement, the early days, it reminds me a little bit of Joseph and his brethren, the way we treat one another. But we've worked past that. We've gotten past those days as young men. To the point now, there is a great assembly of brethren who identify with these prophecies, and they have a sense of destiny that they belong to Israel, and those promises made to the fathers belong to them too. This passage of Scripture defines very clearly two groups, the house of Judah and the house of Ephraim. But I want you to take note of in this prophecy, it includes not only Judah, but the companions with him. It includes the house of Ephraim and the companions with him. Who are these companions that are with the house of Judah and the house of Israel? Those are believing Gentiles. Just like the exodus out of Egypt, where God brought a mixed multitude out of Egypt to establish the state of Israel. In this final day, this greater exodus, he will bring a mixed multitude. People of all of the nations of the world would be joining with Judah and Ephraim to come forward, and we will all be numbered together. This is the true fulfillment of the gospel, of the Messiah to go into all of the world and all of the nations, and to share the good news with all peoples. And here is the culmination of this good news. Redemption has come, and God will establish his kingdom, and you are invited to come and be a part of it.
A great wedding is planned. Everyone is invited. So all of those themes that we had earlier learned in Christianity, suddenly it's not just themes anymore. It's becoming a reality in this day. We are watching world events for the other signs, the other events, how God is going to bring this all about. And with great expectancy, we're anticipating that it's things that are involved in our generation. Now, let me step back and be a little bit more practical about our messianic movement and our messianic teaching, because there's also a very profound reference to three things that have to be done by us who would be a part of this. It specifically says that Ephraim is going to be joining with Judah, that Judah already is in the land. Now, Judah already has the Torah. They already have the instructions of the Lord. They already have the identity of Moses and the God of Israel and so forth. It's a lot of us coming out of the nations. We're having to gain that identity because we've been given the substitute identity of being long part of the church as a result of being believers in the king of Israel. And we're getting recalibrated to where that the king of Israel is the king, is the Messiah himself. And the promises made to uh, the, those that came out of Egypt are promises that belong to us too. And so as we've made that adjustment, we've had to come to terms with Torah and the instructions and righteousness. And so those in the Messianic movement that have come in in this generation, you've had to learn Torah. You've had to learn that we have to cease from the idols of the nations. We just finished the holiday period, and boy, is that a shining example of how to get away from that. We've had to learn to eat differently. To not eat the detestable. So messianics come in. They suddenly discover, hey, we don't get to go to Red Lobster for the shrimp special anymore. And um, so much for pork loin. You know, that's gone. That's never going to be a part of your life anymore. And so we've learned to not eat the detestable. Then we've had to learn the commandments. And your participation in this weekly Torah study, keeping Sabbath, keeping the appointed times of the Lord, is your spiritual instruction. And it turns out those were the three things that Ezekiel said has to take place for Ephraim to come out of the nations and join with Judah to be a part of this great hope and future. We have to cease from the idols. Cease from eating the detestable and cease from transgressing the commandments of the Lord. A simple Torah study that's going on in the Messianic movement today is teaching and accomplishing those things. So here we are. Following exactly what Ezekiel said that would be taking place, observing the very events that would be taking place. But I have some wonderful news for you, what Ezekiel goes on to continue to say. This conflict that exists with the house of Judah, not recognizing Yeshua of Nazareth being the Messiah, it's going to get resolved. They're going to come to terms with that. Just as you and I had to come to terms with the Torah and the instruction, they're going to come to terms with who the Messiah really is. 
And the events that are taking place in the world are going to drive them because of the trauma and the difficulty. It's going to drive them to call upon the name of the Lord and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Referencing the Messiah. And you and I will be right there going, yea, verily, he is the Messiah. And they will suddenly recognize their brother Ephraim is in their midst. It will be a very interesting aha moment here at the end of the ages. Because a lot is going to be taking place. Not only for us, but for them. And the unification amongst us that will be taking place. This is the unification. This is the great restoration that heralds in the kingdom. Now, in our Torah story... Provision was made for Jacob and his whole family in the midst of a great world famine. God intends to, in the midst of this entire turmoil of the world that's going on, to provide provision for us and to establish us, and we will remain as a result. And just as the story continues on in the book of Exodus of going back to the promised land, you and I, too, will eventually be going back to the promised land. Of course, in that time, why the Messiah will be dwelling there. And he'll be in charge of the whole world. And by the way, there will be a new world. And those that were at odds with him beforehand won't be there. It will be the people that want to be there and that he wants to be there. And that will be the kingdom. Let me repeat again the words, how this chapter ends that defines that future kingdom and that future world that we're going to be in. Again, repeating from words 20, verse 24. And my servant David will be king over them. Who's the son of David? The Messiah. Yeshua of Nazareth. And they will all have one shepherd. One Messiah. We'll have the same Messiah. And we'll all walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. We will all follow the commandments of God that were given by Moses to us. As Yeshua himself said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He does not have a new rule book for his kingdom. It is the exact same rule book that he's already given. Our ability to learn those rules now. And to come to terms with them and have a heart to obey them is paving the way for us to live in the kingdom. Those who would argue against these rules, those who would not have a heart to obey, they are going to have great difficulty entering into his kingdom. As the Messiah said, those who keep and teach these commandments will be great in the kingdom. But but those who annul and teach against and don't keep, they will be least in the kingdom. It's in our very best interest, therefore, that we learn to obey the commandments of the Lord. That our testimony be clear, not only in our own hearts and souls, but it be clear with our families. Be clear with our friends and our associates. Let our testimony be transparent and the same no matter where you go or who sees you. I want to share just a short uh, memento story, anecdotal story, I should say, 
uh, the holiday that we just completed, the, the Christmas Hanukkah time frame. There is a teaching that, uh, that I did a year ago about Hanukkah and dealing with Christmas. And we um, made it available again this year uh, by way of our Facebook page, and you could uh, uh, view it again. And, and just to review very quickly what it was, is that, that I made a presentation about, look, let us remember as we interface with our families who are still keeping Christmas and, and those things, let us remember we used to be there. We used to be just like that. And we are. let's recognize that coming in and attacking that or taking issue with that is, is going to be hurtful, harmful, and, and we're basically going to get rejected if you do that. And that if we're going to share the truth... In love, if, if we're going to move forward in a positive way, as the scripture is telling us to cease from the idols of the nations, we, we've got to come up with a new approach on how we teach about idolatry and how we address this in a loving, kind, mature manner with our own family members, our own brethren that are still a part of things we used to be a part of. So this particular teaching went through. In a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a first phase of trying to, let's, let's understand who we're trying to address this with and let's be loving and careful about what we do here. And then secondly, let us be clear about what is this issue of idolatry and what the Lord has said about it and the questions that we have to face and we have to answer. And obviously the conclusion of the program was... Um, while we have stepped away from those things and have now chosen to follow the commandments of the Lord, let us be merciful and graceful to, and, and allow God's grace to work in the hearts of them and draw them in by a good, loving example of ourselves as opposed to a harsh, attacking mode upon them. Well, we played that program again. Um, one of the ladies who's been a part and the families that's been a part of our ministry for many, many years. She came up to me this year and she said, hey, we saw that again. And my daughter, who's been very opposed to what we've been doing, turning to the Torah, got a chance to see it, too. And her daughter confessed to her and says, you know, Mom, I think I finally understand where you're coming from. I, I understand what this man is trying to say, and, and, it, and it makes sense. And, and, and I, think, I think I'm willing to kind of lay a few things down and let me look at this and try to understand this better, what you've been trying to say. And the mom, of course, was coming up to me to say what had been a hope and a prayer of her for many, many years, suddenly you know, she's delighted that there's been a little bit of a breakthrough. And finally, we're mother and daughter are getting on the same page about important things of the Lord. And, and it's being done in an atmosphere of love and respect and care for one another as opposed to theologically confrontational. Well, that's a little micro picture of what's really going to be taking place here at the end of the age. 
you do know there's a rather major theological conflict between my Jewish brethren and coming to terms with the Messiahship of Yeshua of Nazareth. There's a major conflict within my Christian brethren of coming to terms with the commandments of the Lord. When suddenly the commandments, when they're shown to them, it appears we're not following the commandments of the Lord. We believe in God. We, we believe in the Messiah. But all of a sudden, I'm, as the Torah says, I'm in sin. Now, here's the Christians. They think they're the good guys. And it says they're in sin. <laughs> the Jews think they're the good guys. And it turns out they missed it. Everybody's in sin. Everybody missed it. You and I of the Messianic brethren in this movement today, we are the example of the people who admit we missed it and we're correcting it. We're heralding that, yes, Yeshua of Nazareth is the Messiah. And, yes, we are to obey his commandments and learn them. Do you understand that in the fulfillment of this great prophecy of coming to the point of one shepherd, one set of commandments for this kingdom, you and I as Messianic brethren today in this generation, for all that's going on in the world, we are the tip of the spear of what God is doing in this world to establish his kingdom. We have a very high calling. We are at the cutting edge of God establishing his kingdom. Now, I don't know about you, but that inspires me to want to do this well. To love the Lord with all my heart, soul, and might. Because I have a feeling that there's a wake following after me. Of a multitude that's coming. That's my perspective on the Messianic movement today. Not trying to take any credit upon myself, but let me just give you one example. I remember the days when you had to be very careful to talk about Sabbath. I remember the days when we, oh my goodness. We had to be very careful about talking about bacon. I remember the days when we suggested to people keeping the Passover in their home or going to the Feast of Tabernacles and everybody going, what? I remember the days, and it wasn't that long ago, when going out to go camping at Sukkot and inviting people to come was like a a rare and never done before event. And now today, it dominates. Many Sukkots. Everyone keeps Sabbath. Everyone keeps kosher. Everyone keeps the Passover. It didn't used to be that way. And the reason why is because we're that transitional generation. There didn't used to be a state of Israel, but there is. Are you aware of the fact that in 2017 and wrapping around to 2018, 
we're coming upon the 70th anniversary of the state of Israel. The 70th year. It's in this generation that these words are being fulfilled. So Shabbat Shalom. And thank you, Ezekiel, for laying the pattern out for us to see what would be happening in our days. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your incredible testimony, your story, beginning with your calling upon our fathers, your wonderful promises for the establishment of the nation and the people to, be, to, to follow after you, and your willingness to make covenant with us and become our God and our King. Um, how is it that we get to be a part of these wonderful things when there's so many others that are not or appear that they're not? We have to conclude, Lord, that it's by your grace and your mercy that we're here, not by any act of righteousness on our part. So we thank you for that. And we praise you that you are a God who makes promises and keeps promises, that you're a God who is full of loving kindness and stand in for us even when we're not faithful. As you bring these matters to a conclusion at the end of the ages, Lord, We are pleased, we are excited, and we want to be a part of your wonderful plan to establish your kingdom and bring honor and praise and glory to your name. Look down upon us now with favor. Teach us your ways. Instruct us how to walk appropriately before you and before all others that are in this world. And I pray for my Messianic brethren as a whole all over the world. Continue to increase us and build us up, Lord, and fulfill your good word, the word you promised to our fathers, to make his descendants as the sand of the sea, as the stars of the heaven. And may your kingdoms be soon and established in the promised land that you gave. We ask all of this in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, our coming King. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. If you would, please turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, to chapter 24. Hold your finger at verse 13, where our Brit Hadashah portion will begin for this week. And let us turn this time over to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for coming together uh, in our communities and in our families, Lord, to hear from your word and your instruction. And Father, we thank you now for this New Testament portion. Father, I pray that it ministers to us, encourages us, and strengthens us in our faith in you. Father, we thank you for all the blessings that you give to us on this Sabbath day and now for this time of teaching. It's in your son Yeshua that we pray. Amen. The Torah portion this week, Vayagash, which is the time in which Joseph was revealed to his brothers, in which he finally came out and said that him being the viceroy of Egypt, he had had some time and some interactions with his brothers without them knowing that they were coming and buying grain in Egypt because of the great worldwide famine that was taking place. And of course, he had, there were some instances in which he was 
where he planted a cup in uh, Benjamin's bag and they had to then come back and they had to meet with him again. And he had thrown Simeon in prison for a, for a bit of time as well. And so there were some interactions and the brothers, they always had this feeling or the sense that they were being punished. And in truth be told, they were, but they didn't know truly what the source of that punishment was. They thought that it was because of what they did to their brother and the harm that they had caused their father by telling him that his beloved son had died and that this is all, uh, all of this is coming, coming back to them and, and all this punishment that's coming upon them because of what they did. But of course we have the story in the beginning of our Torah portion here about Judah coming and being the one, being the surety for Benjamin and him pouring his heart out as to learn and to know what it is to stand up for his brother. And that was when Joseph broke down. That is when he could not stand it any longer and revealed himself. Well, the whole idea, um, I didn't have time to get into this in last week's portion, but the whole idea of Joseph revealing himself to his brothers was this idea that he was their brother. He was in a position that they would have never expected. He appeared like he was in the world as, as an Egyptian, and they did not recognize him, even though he was their kin. And what I want to do is I want to bring out in the New Testament portion that same concept of not being recognized by the brethren. Now, we, of course, know that after the resurrection of the Messiah, you now know kind of why we're going to be reading the passage that we're going to be reading. Before we get into that, I should point out that the people who knew Yeshua best, his disciples, his friends, those that knew him, after he was risen from the grave, he was not recognized by them. We see this also in John chapter 20, verses 14, where Mary Magdalene did not recognize him. He came and he spoke to her and she presumed him to be the gardener that when she came to see that Yeshua's body was now no longer in the tomb. The stone had been moved and she pleaded with him as to if you know what happened to the body, please reveal. And then that's when he did reveal himself to Mary Magdalene. And now we have the story about the road to Emmaus where he will interact with some of the disciples walking on the road, and they don't recognize him. They don't know that he is their master, their savior. And we sit there and wonder, and a lot of people have had theories about this as time has gone on, about how when, God, when Yeshua rose from the grave, did he truly have a different physical appearance? Was he given a new body similar to what we believe we will do when we are resurrected from this world? And then when we go into the kingdom, that we will have new bodies, will be a new creation. So much so that will we appear like we physically do today on this earth? There's a huge question about that. Will those that died old, will they be given younger bodies and they'll appear young once again? You know, will there still will we still age in the same way? We, we don't know any of these questions. And so this is one of those theories that are out there that we can sit and we can midrash all day long about, you know, what this means or what this might be. And the fact that the disciples did not recognize Yeshua kind of in, is added to that discussion of what happens when we die. Is there a new body that is given to us, one that our best friends might not even recognize? You know, another theory also is that the last time they saw Yeshua, that he was brutally beaten, that he was that, that, that he was unrecognizable at that point in time. And he always appeared very humble, looking like he had very humble origins. He was a man that that the uh, Greeks or um, uh, the uh, Romans had to hire somebody to 
to rec- to point him out. Like, we don't even know what the guy looks like. And so there's a lot of thought that the Messiah himself, that he was, he, he appeared very lowly. Not that he was some, uh, you know, man with an amazing, uh, physique and a physical appearance that where he, he shined when, when it was a crowd. It's like, no, all the, all the gospel accounts kind of point out that he didn't stand out from among the crowd. He stood out when he spoke or when he's revealed his spirit. That's when people took notice or recognized. But his physical appearance didn't follow suit. Is it also that when he rose from the grave, that then his physical appearance did appear that of, of somebody who was royal, noble, that or he was, it's like a man who was cleaned up and who was put on clean robes, like going from somebody who looked like they were a prisoner all the way to somebody looking like they're royalty. This, of course, parallels like once again to the life of Joseph, that that's exactly what happened to him coming out of prison in these garments and being put on Joseph. And then he lived for a number of years in Egypt and started to look like he was an Egyptian. In the case of the Messiah, did he just have a completely different natural appearance? Or one of the other theories is, is that spiritually they didn't recognize him. There was some sort of supernatural power by which that he... They were not able to see or recognize him, even though he had the same physical appearance. Their eyes were were spiritually or miraculously blinded by knowing truly who he was. All of those theories, I've heard people uh, suggest all, every single one of those. Whether I agree with one over another, I actually can't say if I necessarily uh, believe that one truly has a stronger uh, testimony. But what I do want to do is I do want to read this story because it absolutely does parallel what happens with Joseph when he then was revealed to his brothers. So now let us read the story on the road to Emmaus that comes to us from Luke chapter 24, beginning at verse 13, where it says this. Now, behold, two of them, that was the disciples that were traveling the same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem, and they talked together of all the things that had just happened. So it was while they conversed and they reasoned that Yeshua himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things concerning Yeshua of Nazareth. He was a prophet, mighty indeed, in word before God and all people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, this is Yeshua speaking again now, and slow of heart to believe. And all the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
Now the story continues as the disciples' eyes are opened. It says this now at verse 28. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he, in, in, um, and he indicated that he would have gone farther, but they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him. And then he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up from that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven, those who were with them, gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. The story continues on and then he continues to show himself and reveal himself and he appears before the disciples. And he says, and, and let me continue on. I do want to mention one, one other thing that Messiah said. Let's continue reading now at verse 36. Now, as they said these things, Yeshua himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, peace to you. And they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had, supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do you doubt, why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see it, see I have. And when he had said this, he showed his hands and his feet. And while they stood, they did not believe, still did not believe for joy and marveled. He said to them, have, any, have you any food here? So they gathered a, a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it, and he ate in their presence. So this is the Messiah, and, and, and as the story, and, and you can see the feelings, then, and, and assume what the feelings were of the disciples when they saw their master arisen from the dead. Now, they believing him to be the Messiah, that he had the power over death, but still, once you see it, you then believe it. And he, it's like he was risen from the dead. Well... For the brothers of Joseph back in Egypt, this was the same feeling. They had sold Joseph many years previous, and he was, and, and, and he, as far as they were concerned, he was long dead. He was long gone. He was, he, there was never going to be revealed or, or ever see him ever again. So when he finally did reveal himself, when he finally did cry out, and, and to which all of Egypt could hear, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, they, they didn't believe him. They stood still. They were astonished. And it wasn't until they came near to him or came closer to him that they finally realized that it was their brother and that he was alive. And that was the whole story. And you can go back to our Torah portion and all the scriptures always talking about that he's alive. Your brother's alive. Go tell Jacob, our father, that I am alive, that he, that, that, that he is not dead. Because that was the assumption, that he was dead. He was gone. In fact, that's definitely what Jacob thought because it was the brothers who brought the tunic with the blood on it that Jacob then, you know, his mind went wild enough to know that he had been surely been torn to bits by a beast and that his son was long dead. This whole concept of the revealing of Joseph to his brothers and to his family is a concept of resurrection. As far as they were concerned, their brother was resurrected from the dead. And here we have, of course, the Messiah himself. That, of course, is his testimony. Now, when he was revealed, the brothers, they got very afraid. 
they were very much dismayed that, you know, now that it's all like, oh, my gosh, Joseph, you're alive. Joseph, you're alive, like, and you're the most powerful man in the world, and you could kill us if you so desired with the position and authority that you have right now, knowing that they had done wrong. The brothers were very troubled after Joseph had revealed himself to them. They're, in fact, their troubles and their concerns carried over all the way through the rest of their lives, all the way until their fa- even after their father Jacob died in Egypt, later on in the book of Genesis, they then were once again afraid because now for uh, the father being alive, that it's like he's now dead. Joseph still has the power that he could kill us if he so still had vengeance in his heart for what they had done to him originally. And what Joseph said to them is similar to what the, what the Messiah said to the disciples. First of all, he said on the road to Emmaus, he said this, O foolish one, slow to heart, believe the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? The idea is this, is that those sufferings, the Messiah dying, even though it caused great distress in the hearts of the disciples, was necessary for life to be given for God to be glorified. The Messiah said this, continuing on here in Luke 24, he said this at verse 46, the Messiah talking to the disciples again, thus it is written and thus it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses to these things. Behold, I send the promise of my father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are in, uh, endued with power from on high. All of these things had to happen. It was necessary for the Messiah to suffer. Joseph reassured his brothers the same. It was necessary. Yes, I was sold and I became a slave and I went to prison. But all of that was necessary. All of that was God's plan originally so that all the world might be saved. The, the parallel here is exactly the same. The, the, the cycle of the story that truly the Messiah is the son of Joseph. In fact, that's one of the most fascinating things is that literally the physical earthly father of the Messiah, his name was Joseph. And yet all the parallels of the Messiah, his life, the means by which he brought salvation to the world and the means by which he was sold out by his brethren, risen up to the right hand of the Father, given all power and authority over all things in heaven and earth. And it's the same story, the same story of what happened to Joseph the patriarch and what happened to the Messiah, the son of Joseph. All this idea of not being recognized by his brothers and then revealing himself I have to once again point out the parallel to what will happen at the end of the age when the Messiah is revealed to the whole world, particularly to the Jewish people, because that is the thing that is going to be. What's the relationship between Messiah Yeshua and the Jewish people? Because, you know, you know, general school of thought, maybe this is oversimplifying. Many people believe that it was the Jews that killed the Messiah. I mean, it was the religious authority and the Pharisees that went about all of the actions by which Yeshua was crucified, put on, or tri- put on trial, accused, and, put, and crucified. So it's like these are the people 
that are physically responsible for the death of the Messiah, when you're talking about the Pharisees. And out of Pharisaic Judaism came some of what we understand and through enough time has become what modern-day Judaism is as well. In fact, what the understanding of modern-day Judaism is that you can't be Jewish and believe in Jesus as the Messiah. It's like the two are incompatible. If you confess faith in, in Jesus, you're no longer a Jew. But we who are messianic, we see the bridge, we see the parallel, we see, look, he was the Messiah. He was the Jewish Messiah that was promised, that they've been praying for, that is the answer and the fulfillment to all Torah and the commandments and the fulfillment of prophecies and all these things. And the Jewish people missed it. They don't see it. They don't see that what Yeshua did was the fulfillment of those things. And they, But we are praying for the day in which... All of Judaism will realize that when they will give their hearts over to the Messiah and that it will be the Messiah revealed to them. And perhaps they won't be revealed until the second coming. They'll see the sign the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven of great glory. He'll show up and he'll say he's the Messiah and they'll know he's the Messiah. No question. He's the Messiah. And they're like, what is your name? And he'll say Yeshua of Nazareth. Wait, the same one. Or a different one. He's like, no, the same one. I came originally. This is my now my second coming. Many Jews will think it's the first. But it will be this amazing revelation. And then suddenly, every it'll hit them. Wait, the sa- wait a minute. The same Jesus of Nazareth that I've been uh, disregarding, that I've been insulting my whole life, that I have spoken ill of my entire, uh, within my religion of Judaism, my entire life. And then they're looking at the Messiah in a whole new way, wondering now, is judgment going to come upon me because what I did and what I said about who I perceived Jesus of Nazareth actually was, that he wasn't the Messiah? Same thing with the brothers and Joseph. This is the pattern of what will happen at the end of the age in the revelation of the Messiah to the Jewish people and to the whole world. Guess what? He won't look like one of them. He won't look like a Jew. He'll look like he's of the world, just like Joseph looked like an Egyptian. But the revelation of it and, and, the, and the, the time and the family reunion and the, and the weeping and hugging and holding and kissing and all of, the, all of those things that you can only imagine when you come to realize that your family, a family member has been resurrected from the dead. All of that will happen. And the Messiah will say, with grace and with truth, and will speak that all the sufferings were necessary so that life may be given, so that, so that we can all be saved, so that we can all be redeemed. And it is by that power that all of Israel will be redeemed and saved, and that, that it will be a wonderful thing at the end of the age. In the same way that this story back in Egypt and this, the whole family coming back together is such a beautiful thing. It's one of those passages of scripture that I get a little teary-eyed. I'm not very emotional, honestly. But when I read about Judah's plea to Joseph and him revealing himself and, and then trying to you know, get word back to his father, it almost feels like there's almost a rush. Like, is his father still going to be alive? Like, if he ever died not knowing that his beloved son was still alive, what a tragedy that would be. Of course, the blessing is Jacob was still alive. And when it was revealed back to him that his son was alive, once again, he didn't believe it either. He didn't believe it, that, that, that he was there. And not only is he alive, but he's also the savior of the world. And that's what all of Israel will feel when the Messiah comes as well. 
at the, at the resurrection that we'll see and we will know that the Messiah is alive, the Messiah of Israel, and all of Israel might know that he, that he is alive, that he has been risen from the dead. See, that's the other thing that we live in, in the world we live in. Some people still question that. You know, Yeshua, you know, all the words that he spoke, he was a great prophet, but there are some who still question whether he was actually risen from the dead. Well, when he comes again, truly and surely, we will all know that he is risen from the dead, that he has conquered death, and that, that we have no fear any longer of the power of death over life, but life and God will prevail. All right, so after he has risen, Jacob, you know, the, the, once again, the, the testimony of the resurrection of his son, <clears throat> excuse me, which of course parallels here in the uh, in the New Testament. If you would now turn with me to Acts chapter 7. Now, Acts chapter 7 in the uh, testimony of Stephen in during his trial, he is recounting all of this history. And this is one of the common uh, passages that is read for this Torah portion, not only this portion, but for the last couple of Torah portions. Because in a short paragraph here, he describes everything that was happening in Joseph. Obviously, reading here from the book of Acts in the New Testament. So if we can just, you know, tell the story of what happened in the Torah portion from the New Testament, we don't need to go any further, but here in Acts chapter 7. There is one thing that I want to point out that parallels back to our Torah portion and a bit of information that perhaps needs to be clarified. Some things that uh, uh, people question, riddles in the scripture, and hopefully I can clarify some of these things as well. But let's read starting at verse 9 in Acts chapter 7. And this is the story and the testimony of Stephen of exactly what happened to our patriarchs back in the book of Genesis. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. And Joseph sent out and called his father, Jacob, and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt and he died, he and our fathers. And so they were carried back to Shechem and laid in a tomb that Abraham bought for the sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. This is the story continuing on just the whole summation of what happened with the sons of Jacob going down into Egypt and Jacob going there to live out the rest of his life. In our Torah portion in Genesis 46, we have the passage by which um, messengers have been sent to Jacob and say, gather up your household, your family, come to Egypt. Come and dwell in the best land of Egypt to be preserved. We are two years into a seven-year famine. It's not going to get any better up there, according to the will of God. So you need to come down here. There's grain here. You must be able to come down here so that you might be preserved here in Egypt. Once again, what happens to the fathers happens to the descendants. Abraham had to go down into Egypt for his life to be preserved. And Jacob now going down to Egypt for his life to be preserved during this famine. The Messiah himself, as an infant, had to go down to Egypt for his life to be preserved from the killing of the babies by King Herod. So all of that, there's a, once again, that same pattern. Now, 
If you go to Genesis 46, as we have in our Protestant Bibles and all of the uh, readings and the listings of all the names and all of those that came from the loins of Jacob, we have almost like a census of the family here of them coming down to Egypt. In that passage of scripture, it says that there are 70 persons that came down. And on all the listening of the names, you can count 69 of those. We've revealed before in the past that um, the, the mystery last person, the 70th person that made it down to Egypt was actually Yoheved, the mother of Moses, who was a daughter of Levi. And that though the name wasn't listed in Genesis 46, it, the story is, is that she was born shortly after entering into the land, coming to the land, and 70 people came with her. Well, as I said that in Genesis 46, it says 70 people came down. In Exodus chapter 1, it says 70 people came down. Here in Acts, in the testimony of Stephen, he says 75 people came down. And here we have one of those instances in which it appears that there is a discrepancy between the Old Testament and the New. What I have to point out here very, very quickly is that how we got the Protestant Bible that we have, that we read today, obviously it came from the uh, Catholic Bible, in which then the Apocrypha and other books were removed as well. But all of those English translations of our Bible, all were translated from the Masoretic text, which was a Hebrew text that came a couple hundred years after the time in the story of the Messiah, by which all of these scriptures in the Old Testament were compiled by the group of the Masoretes who faithfully put and created the what we know as the Hebrew Tanakh, and what it, that's the Old Testament, and it, all of our English translations were translated from that. However, there are older manuscripts of the Old Testament, older instructions of, of uh, copies of the of those uh, particular books that, of course, predate the Messiah, because we know these were the scriptures. The Messiah himself referenced the Torah, the Psalms, the prophets. All of those writings all happened before the time of the Messiah, but our English translations come from a manuscript that came 200 years after the Messiah. So, if you go find an older manuscript, you might find some changes between it and the Masoretic text. And truth be told, that's exactly the case. There are records, and there is whether you go to the famous historian Josephus, there is also an older uh, document called the Samaritan Pentateuch, which the group of the Samaritans, which is the sect of Judaism that, uh, that dwells in, in the, and believes Mount Gerizim to be the, the mountain of God, and there's a whole disconnect. It still is a sect of Judaism. They have their own Pentateuch and their own scriptures. And then you also have another older uh, manuscript that is known as the Greek Septuagint, which was when a series of rabbis translated all of the ancient uh, scriptures and texts into Greek. And all of those manuscripts and the, and the records of Josephus, the historian, all predate the Masoretic text. If you go back to those texts, if you have an English copy of the Septuagint, you can go and find, very interestingly, Genesis 46. There is a different listing of the names. It's, some of it is identical. Some of it is slightly unique or different. In the um, Septuagint, it specifically lists the names of the sons of Ephraim and Manasseh, which you won't find in Genesis 46 of the Masoretic text or of our English Bibles. And when it all counts up all the names from those older manuscripts, indeed it says that 75 persons 
went down into Egypt according to the Septuagint and some of these other manuscripts that predate the Messiah. Also in Exodus 1, same story, where it says 70. In our English Bibles, it indeed says 75 persons in, uh, in the Greek Septuagint. So, if Stephen right here is speaking to the people, to his knowledge at the time, manuscripts that existed at the time of Stephen and at the time of the Messiah, indeed said 75 persons came down to Egypt. There is not a discrepancy according to the scripture. Now, if we're simply looking at our English Bibles and don't understand, you know, somehow there are slight translation changes, then we might get very confused. And these are not the only changes. And sometimes the whole point that I would try to make is this. There is not a discrepancy in the testimony of Stephen. And what we also need, what I also need to teach is this. I in no way am I trying to compromise the word of God as to say that because it's filled with errors that somehow we are not to believe it. Excuse me. Many people have come to faith in the Lord following Torah and his word and his commandments and the revelation of God have come through these scriptures. Some of these technical details may be different or miscopied or or dropped from some translation that came in a future time or a future copying of a manuscript by some sage somewhere. But just because some of these technical details might be slightly off does not mean that the word of God in any way is compromised when it comes to its spiritual instruction and the faith that we should have in the word of God. But I want to make sure that there's an understanding that there is not a discrepancy in the understanding of some of these details. If you sometimes go back to an older manuscript Stephen, it's not that Stephen didn't know what he was saying or that he was misquoting what was actually in the scripture, only that our English Bibles actually do have changes that came later so as to appear sometimes that there is a discrepancy. Such is not the case. So this, of course, being the time in which Stephen recounted all of these things, we do have to remember the whole point of all of this is the revelation of the Messiah. And his ability to save is immeasurable, just like Joseph was. And because of the way Joseph was preserved in Egypt, it was an incredible blessing to him and to his family so that his father and his family might be saved. There's another beautiful story that continues on our Torah portion toward the end where Joseph introduces his father to Pharaoh, where he comes before he appears before Pharaoh. And this is the Pharaoh that was the good Pharaoh. This is the one that that, wrote, that raised Joseph up to this leadership. Whenever we think of the Pharaoh of Egypt, I think in our minds we're always thinking of, you know, the Exodus and how evil he was and the plagues and how hardened his heart was. But this king over uh, over Egypt at this time was a good king, a king that desired for that that, that saw the spirit of God in Joseph and was at, was desiring for people to to live and to not die. And this isn't the one that put the, the children of Israel into bondage. And so we have this amazing honor bestowed upon Jacob to appear before Pharaoh. Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Pharaoh asks him, how old are you? And he says, my, my pilgrimage, I believe, is 130 years, is, I think it is what it said. And so there's this meeting. And if we're thinking about all the symbolism of that each character represents. Think about this for a minute. I've been describing the story as Pharaoh, almost as if he's the master of the world, almost as if he is God, God, the father, 
that he is the one that, that, is the, that raised up Joseph to be at his right hand. In the same way that God the Father raised up Yeshua to be at his right hand. So Pharaoh in this story embodies God the Father. Joseph, of course, embodies Yeshua, the Savior of the world. Jacob, of course, embodies Israel. That was his name. It was, that was the people, the people of God. Also, you can, I could also say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because you can think about the entire planting of the Lord and what, uh, and what Israel and all of his sons, how it grew and spread to be a kingdom of priests to all nations. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit that is embodied through the life of Israel and its descendants. So we can also say this is a, a meeting of the three, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But I also look at it this way. Because I'm going back to that prophecy I was talking about. Joseph, Yeshua, the Messiah is revealed to the whole world. We then have all the judgment and Joseph still had work to do to uh, distribute food during the course of the famine. And there was still more work to do, even though the Messiah had been revealed. And then we have this bringing together. And I can see it this way. Yeshua is the one who is bringing Israel to meet God the Father. It is by Yeshua. When Yeshua said, no one goes to the Father except through me. Well, guess what? Nobody was meeting Pharaoh except going through Joseph. And it was Joseph, the Messiah at the time, the one who saved the world, brings and brings Israel to God the Father. If that's not the parallel of the the very plan of God and what the role of Yeshua is, I don't know what else can compare. From Yeshua being our ambassador, our intercessor, our high priest that is the intermediary between us and God the Father. In the same way in that role, Joseph did exactly the same for his father to meet Pharaoh, the king of the world. So in all of this, we see the great plan of God, what the role of the Messiah is to be the one that we call upon to bring us to God and into his presence so that we can enter into covenant with him so that we can do business with God and we can confess to the creator of heaven and earth our love to him and the covenant and the relationship that we have which is what God intended from the very beginning why he created man why it's not good for us to be alone and his entire desire is to dwell with us and dwell with his people that's the whole plan of God and such is embodied in the story of Joseph and the salvation to the world and to his family to be preserved in Egypt. What an amazing story it is. And I just love the, the parallels between Joseph and the Messiah are completely uncanny. I can't state it enough that I don't know how you can understand the power of Yeshua without first knowing the story of Joseph. And that if you know the story of Joseph, then surely you will see the salvation of Israel in Messiah Yeshua. The two are intertwined. If you ever are talking to somebody that believes in the Torah but not in Yeshua, or follows Yeshua but doesn't follow anything in the Torah, this might be the first stop in sitting down and saying, hey, let's have a Bible study. Let's talk about, you know, you, you usually talk about the Old, the Old Testament. Let's talk about the New, and but let's do it on, with the eyes, with the through the lens of Joseph. <clears throat> Excuse me. Or you're used to talking about Yeshua and you know all these things. Let's read the Old Testament and let's read the story of Joseph through the eyes of Yeshua. I believe this story and this parallel is one of the bridges by which you can sit down with somebody that believes one and not the other 
and that it might be this, that they, their eyes would be opened and that the revelation of the God of the Old Testament is one and the same with the God of the New Testament. That is what my hope would be if we are teaching one another, lifting up one another, and so that so one's eyes might be open just as Joseph's eyes were open. So with that said, and as we are wrapping up next week, the, the story of Joseph and uh, his family as they dwell in Egypt, then we will soon be getting into the story of, Exod- of the Exodus and getting into Moses as well. Um, once again, let's go before the Lord and thank him for the revelation of his scriptures and the stories of old. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, once again for this time of study, for your scriptures, and once again for the life of Joseph, Lord, and for sending your son, Yeshua. Father, I pray that our eyes would be opened, that you would spiritually open our eyes and reveal yourself to us. Reveal yourself to the world, Father. Reveal yourself to your people. Father, may all confess with their hearts and with their mouths, Lord, that you are our Lord and Savior, that you are king over all Israel, king over all the earth, Lord. So reveal yourself, Lord. Though you might look different than what we might be expecting, what we might, uh, we, we might see the Messiah in somebody that we wouldn't expect. Father, I pray that we all power and glory go to you, Lord. That when those encounters happen, when those divine interventions take place, when one is sharing with another the work and the the good news and the testimony that you have given to us through your word, Father. Father, may our hearts not grow cold and bitter and hard, but Father, may we grow, may our hearts be soft to receive your word and may our eyes and ears be opened to truth and to revelation. For only you can reveal those things to us, Father. So, Father, I pray that all of your people, Lord, might have their eyes spiritually opened, just as the brothers of Joseph, when they saw their brother, and then they knew that salvation was had, and that even though they had great fear and trepidation at the time, Father, it was you who had your hand and your will on all of it. So we love you, we bless you, and we thank you on this Sabbath day. We thank you for all of these teachings and instructions. We thank you for your Sabbath, and I thank you, Lord, for all the people, Lord. And I pray all of them have a wonderful Sabbath of rest and refreshment. And in our homes and in our hearts, Father, may we always give you the praise and the glory. It's in your son, Yeshua, that we pray these things. Amen and amen. Shabbat Shalom.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Bye. 